he has vibranium tattoos on his body that are black when not used, and they and they appear as black bands on his on his arms, and a tribal spider on his chest. This is Chance Davis. He's a senior art major at Norfolk State University, and he's describing an original comic book character he's created. When he activates it, the suit comes out of those tattoos, similar to how Spider-Man and Iron Man's new suits morph over their bodies. It's a new Spider-Man who happens to be born in Wakanda, the mythical African home of Black Panther. Davis, who posts his work under a unique pseudonym. I also, I'm also known as Zryars, that is Z-R-A-I-A-R-Z. Is an aspiring digital artist. In addition to Wakandan Spider-Man, he's dreaming up an original superhero series inspired in part by ancient history. I have a full range of all mythology from all around the world to use as my base for my characters. So we have this girl here, and she would represent an Egyptian goddess or a Greek god or whatever. So you could have like a girl born as the next Zeus. All over the country, teachers are using graphic novels and animation to tell complex stories in accessible ways. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, drawing history. Later in the show, the comic superhero Hardware is also a scientist named Curtis Metcalf who grapples with his identity as a black academic. And I think Curtis Metcalf, the more successful he is and the more he separates himself from his community in this comic book, he finds that troubling and he's trying to reconcile that. And the annual comics convention Comic-Con draws more than 140,000 people, including retailers hawking their wares. Well, last year I saw the most unusual thing. It was lawn furniture that was Star Wars themed. But first, what happens when you mix comic books with one of our country's deepest historical wounds? To find out, we sent With Good Reason associate producer Cass Adair to a conference where history meets graphic arts. At the top of the show, you met Chance Davis. He's that young comic book artist who's imagining a Wakandan version of Spider-Man. Because I wanted him to be like a more urban parkour, very agile, very fast, a spider who would throw his weight around more than just relying on webs. Yeah, that guy. Well, when I met Davis, we were in this big exhibit hall at Norfolk State University. All around us, teenagers and even younger kids are walking around and meeting with local illustrators, flipping through original comic art, and chatting eagerly about Black Panther and Deadpool. But this wasn't a comic book convention. Davis and I were actually at an academic conference. This whole thing, this big room full of artists and animators and teenagers, is actually part of Norfolk State University's annual 1619 conference. The event is meant to commemorate the arrival of the first Africans to English-speaking North America. And the story of that year, 1619, it's a story of slavery and colonization and the Middle Passage. The conference organizers hoped that adding comic books to the mix would draw a younger crowd. They even encouraged undergraduate art students to draw their own interpretations of the events of 1619 in comic book form. I tried to like, you know, get into the transition like, oh, this is the ship. This is the people getting off the ship. This is Jamestown. That's Amaya Drew, a Norfolk State freshman and aspiring professional artist. Her comic told the story of a young African girl arriving in Virginia for the first time. Pretty much she was just kind of furious about being here and not back home. 
When she was drawing, Amaya was thinking about how to fully represent the complex human emotions of these newly arrived Africans. Because you always see it on TV as just like the brutal things and the gruesome things. But granted, it's not all going to be positive, but there was probably positive moments, right? Like I know some days had to be like, okay, I have a bit more hope now today, or I'm going to keep going today. Like today pushed me to make it to tomorrow. And I think that every human just has that something that keeps them going every day and something that like makes them want to get out of bed and, you know, just live life. To fans, that's the power of comics. This is a medium that can encapsulate stories of hope and resilience and history and Spider-Man, Black Panther crossovers. For With Good Reason, I'm Cass Adair. Coming up next, Icon, Hardware, and the Black superheroes of Milestone Comics. In the 1990s, a group of African-American artists and writers created a whole universe of Black superheroes. It was in response to underrepresentation of minorities in comics, Tommy Bryant teaches English at Virginia Highlands Community College. He says Milestone Comics offered uplifting and complex stories that centered Black characters and their experiences. Tommy, tell me a little about yourself and how you first got into comics. Uh, Well, as a kid, um, I lived in Bristol, Virginia, and I was walking downtown Bristol with my dad. And that was a while back. There was a store that I learned later was called The Book Nook. And I was walking past holding my dad's hand and I looked through the glass and I saw Thor on the front of a comic and um, I was stunned. He was holding this hammer and I was just enamored right away. And so I, I wanted to read. I wasn't able to read. I hadn't started school yet, but I just was determined to learn to read so I could read those books. And anything I could read, I just wanted to read. But the superhero comics were always my favorite. So I always went back to them and I always collected them up until I was around 15 years old. Now, you did fall away from comics briefly, right? I did. Um, Not briefly, but for a while. Um, When I was 15 years old and eight months, I got my learner's permit, and I discovered that there were people of the opposite sex. And so um, they, (laughs) they didn't care for people who read comic books, and so I abandoned them. I just sort of let them go. It was Dan Rather who brought me back. How do you do that? Well, I was watching the news um, just one night, and Dan Rather mentioned it was 1992. He, uh, he mentioned that Superman was going to die in comics, and I was stunned. And, you know, not Superman. He's the most iconic character in the history of comics, I think. And so I went down to the local store. It was Mountain Empire Comics, and I asked the owner if I could buy a copy of that book. And he said, sure. And so he gave me a copy, and I, I read it, and I thought it was interesting. And then the following week, I went back to follow up. I started reading that storyline about his death and the aftermath. After maybe five or six months, I was completely immersed in this world that I had abandoned for so many years. And I loved it. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. When did you discover the group of men who were starting their own all-African-American comic series? Yes, that was the following year. Um, And it was called Milestone Comics in 1993, the year after the death of Superman. And I was really surprised um, up until that point, there had been some characters in comics who were, you know, persons of color, and there were there were some who were iconic, you know, Luke Cage and Black Panther, but there'd never been a company that was started by African Americans featuring African American characters, even African American artists or persons of color as the artist, and so they came out one each week. The first one was Hardware, and then Icon, and then Blood Syndicate and Static, and when I read Hardware, I was incredibly impressed. 
It was a great story, great art. That was sort of great timing to get back into comics in 92 with the death of Superman in the following year, have this incredible um, company, Milestone Comics, start their own line and keep me going with my fascination and love of comics again. Tell me about one of those African-American comic book heroes named Curtis Metcalf, who has the alias hardware. Who, yes. who is Curtis, and what is his alias? Yeah, his, his alias is hardware, and Curtis Metcalf was sort of um, the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man before Robert Downey Jr. became Iron Man. Iron Man at one point in comics was a character who'd had a lot of troubles. Um, he'd been an alcoholic, and so um, I think the troubled past made him a, a more interesting character in the comic book as Iron Man. And Curtis Metcalf had sort of that same lifestyle in the comics. He was a brilliant scientist. Um, sometimes his inventions had been used for things he wouldn't want them to be used for. Complex character. It started with sort of um, a suggestion of the Maya Angelou poem. He has a bird in a cage on the first panel. Um, he's just sort of heavily conflicted about his duties to his community and his success. And, you know, Cornel West once said that when you're an African-American man in an academic community, the higher up the academic ladder you go, the further away from your community you go. And I think Curtis Metcalf, the more successful he is and the more he separates himself from his community in this comic book, he finds that troubling and he's trying to reconcile that. Um, it was a breath of fresh air to see this comic book company come along that was sort of focused on identity. And I do think it was important at that time. It was just, you know, not many years before that when, you know, Jesse Jackson ran for president. And I, I think he knew he wasn't going to be successful. He just wanted to put the idea out there. And so I think yeah. uh, Milestone Comics coming along in 1993 gave people the idea that you could have characters of color and they could be successful without being stereotypical and then you, you know, move forward to in you know the last couple of years, you have Black Panther as one of the most successful comic book films ever, where they not only celebrate this black character, but they celebrate his African heritage. So I think that's why in 1993 it was really important to me, because my reading tastes had changed dramatically. Um, I was still reading a lot, but I was reading a lot of stuff like um, Race Matters by Cornel West and Colored People by Dr. Henry Louis Gates and Why Black People Tend to Shout by Ralph Wiley, and all these kinds of books. And then I have these comic book characters that mirror, in many ways, these uplifting stories. And you even came across a man who was studying this genre richly at the academic level. Yes, which was new as well. Comics is, you know, sort of an academic field. It's, it's growing, but it hasn't gotten to where it I think it will eventually be because these movies are so successful. But Jeffrey Brown wrote um, Black Superheroes Milestone Comics and Their Fans. And so I snatched it up, and it was great. It was sort of like you know early on in film studies, Donald Bogle wrote a book called um, Toms, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks. He's saying that early black actors had to play one of these stereotypical roles just to get work. But later, Dr. Ed Guerrero wrote a book called Framing Blackness, where he's looking at Spike Lee and other people. And so I think that when Brown wrote his book, he's really delving into the idea of identity and why it's important to see people who look like you and why equal representation is important. And it sort of, you know, harkened back to Brown versus Board of Education and the, the doll test, you know, when they took the dolls to the Deep South and they told children of color, pick the white doll or the black doll over 90% of the time, 
children of color would pick the white doll because they'd seen so many negative images of themselves, they started to believe that they were inferior. And so it's really important for a company like Milestone to exist, and it's really important for someone like Dr. Brown to write a book like that and outline why it's so important and for people to read that book and then move forward with the conversation. Again, to where we get to um, you know, Chadwick Boseman playing Black Panther, um, and I, I was, again, it, for me, it's, it's just been like the, the greatest time. I was just stunned when I saw that movie, how great it was and how it celebrated, you know, one of the first black characters in Marvel. And now you also celebrate this African heritage, which was just incredibly well done by Ryan Coogler, the director. It's so interesting to me that you learned to read and craved to learn to read as a young preschool boy just because of the comics. Later in high school, you hated high school, but you loved comics. Well, I think I was five foot two and I weighed 104 pounds and half of that was Afro. And so I didn't fit into any <laughs> cliques. And so I wasn't an athlete and I played tennis my senior year, but I went from five two to five ten my junior year. And so I think that was what I didn't like about high school. And I think high school is still much the same. If you're not in a certain clique, you just don't fit. And so I just felt awkward through the process. And I also felt like the stuff they were giving me in school was the least interesting stuff to read that you could find on the face of the planet. I was a horrible student. I hated every second of high school. And during my high school years, I would just crave getting out of school and going home to read my stuff. And I really regret that because I feel like that school is a good learning experience. You're just there to learn the material and to pass those classes. You don't have to internalize it. And I didn't realize that as a young person. You wrote to DC Comics about a year ago. Why was that? Yes, um, we've had now this cultural shift in this country, which is amazing. I remember in American government class, Dr. Schroeder told us that in 2000, for the first time in California's history, Caucasians didn't make up a majority of the population. It was 36% Latino and 33% Caucasian, and then uh, other ethnic groups made up the rest. And so not only have we had that, but most of my students, some of them who've been homeschooled for half of their lives, they've had an African-American president. So times have changed drastically. And so I wrote to um, DC Comics because, you know, in 1993, this incredibly powerful thing happened. That company didn't last as long as I'd hoped. But DC Comics owns the rights to all those characters. And I said, hey, you've got these great characters. Why don't next February Black History Month you just release some one-shots to reintroduce these characters to people who've never heard of them before. And surprisingly, someone from DC Comics wrote me back and said, guess what? <laughs> we were planning to un un unveil these characters again next February. And I think, again, this reintroduction of these incredibly important characters, um, it's a perfect time for these young kids to see them. So that's this February. They're going to roll out these milestone characters. Yes. Like who? Like Icon, Hardware, Blood Syndicate. Um, they did about 12 different titles over the life of the, uh, the company. But there are two that I really want to see. I want to see Icon and I want to see Hardware. Icon, again, is sort of the African-American Superman. His story is really compelling as well. He's an alien who lands on the Earth. And he lands in the Deep South during slavery, and he looks black. And so he just starts living his life as a slave. And he doesn't age, so by the time you're in the contemporary world, he's this incredibly powerful hero who has all these powers, and now he's trying to figure out, what do I do with them? 
And especially as someone who looks like a person of color, how do I engage my community and how do I protect my community? How do I lift up my community? Um, again, those stories were really unique because of the uniqueness of the characters who are African-American. And that wasn't part of the normal superhero world until then. It's so exciting to hear you say this. I think mm-hmm. anybody who hears you advocate for these characters would love to incorporate them into the classroom. Yeah, I think the tide is changing. Uh, when I quit reading comics, I really did quit reading because I didn't think um, any person would go out with me if I was a comic book reader. I thought that would kill my chances. <laughs> and I think that's completely the opposite now, um, where people have sort of embraced this comic book world as part of the culture. And I fully believe now, because these movies have become so popular, if you don't see them, you're out of the conversation. And so now you can be as big a nerd as I am, and people don't mind it. And you don't mind waving your nerd flag. Uh, Because I really do feel like, for me, um, I'm 55 now. I still, when I sit down and read a comic book, I feel like that little kid who was walking past the book nook holding my dad's hand the first time I saw Thor. I really go back to that same feeling inside when I'm reading those books. I love reading other books. I really do. But when I'm reading comics, it's just a different feeling for me. And I think that fascination, that childhood recollection is something that a lot of adults could use at this point. Tommy Bryant is an assistant professor of English at Virginia Highlands Community College. Coming up next, a whole universe of superheroes. Comic books are considered child's play by some people, but increasingly they're being seen as a serious art form worthy of study and preservation. Matthew Smith is a professor and interim dean of the College of Humanities and Behavioral Sciences at Radford University. He's also an avid comics collector and recently co-curator of Marvel, Universe of Superheroes, a major museum exhibit on the history of comics. Matt, just recently, you had read an article in one of the fan magazines where you noticed a mistake, wrote in a letter that was published, and somebody in Europe called you to help curate a Marvel comic exhibit. That's right. So uh, it was actually a piece about uh, the history of Wonder Woman and a wonderful picture by the original Wonder Woman artist, H.G. Peter, but no credit line for H.G. Peter. And so I wrote to the magazine and said, you've got to give credit to Peter because he's phenomenally important to the creation of the character. Um, And over in Germany, uh, a man named uh, Christoph Schultz was reading the magazine and said, you know... I've been approached by Marvel. I need a scientific expert to help consult on this project. This guy seems to know comics really well. And so he reached out to me and invited me to come on board with this project. And the idea was to bring together 80 years of Marvel history to help fans who already knew the characters from film reconnect to the other multimedia manifestations of Marvel. And most importantly for us was the idea that we would give credit and acknowledgement to the creators who were behind those great ideas, those great stories, those great characters. How did Marvel come to be? 
Um, it's actually uh, from a gentleman named Martin Goodman, who was a publisher of all sorts of magazine materials. And when comics started to get very hot and very popular after the creation of Superman in 38, Goodman says, I need to get in on this as well. And so he starts tasking different members of his staff with creating comic book material, trying to compete with the likes of Superman and Batman and get his share of the marketplace as well. So early on, the characters are the Submariner. They're the Human Torch and ultimately Captain America. And Cap really becomes the first success story at Marvel. And while there still are many comics that tell very straight, direct stories, many of them are much more complex. They're more sociologically diverse. You know, they address things from people coming out with their sexuality to people dealing with cancer to people dealing with issues of race and bigotry. Comics can tell you any story that you can find in film or novels or poetry or song. They really are a vehicle for human expression. You started taking students to the huge annual comics convention called Comic-Con? That's right. So San Diego, California has the longest-running comic book convention in the country. 140,000 people descend on San Diego for a week every summer. And so for the last 14 years, I've taken students from across the country on a journey to experience how the cultural industries that make comics market their ideas and how the fans who are there to celebrate the material react to it, play with it, accept it or reject it. Biggest part of a comics convention is the fans, right? And what they do, the dressing up. The cosplay or costume play is absolutely phenomenal. People spend weeks, if not months, perfecting outfits that they wear, emulating their favorite characters from comics, from film, from video games, and putting those on display for the public at large. Uh, The proximity of San Diego to Los Angeles means a lot of star power is brought in. Every major studio is there promoting the next big film. So if Marvel Studios has a major film coming in the fall, they'll bring the cast in. They'll allow them to parade around and uh, be interviewed by the public. You have all the major comics publishers that have uh, their artists and writers and new products on display. You have every retailer who has a license to sell Star Wars paraphernalia out there uh, letting you know about the latest in, well, last year I saw the most unusual thing. It was lawn furniture that was Star Wars themed. Oh, of course. (laughs) You have some in your backyard, don't you? And so the 140,000 people who attend really become opinion leaders. They help to inform everybody about what's going to work and what's not going to work in pop culture for the coming year. Who are some of the people considered real draws, in addition to, of course, the actors in the blockbuster films? Uh, One of the perennial favorites is is a director called Kevin Smith, who uh, has directed several uh, sort of art house films. Uh, He's a stand-up comedian. He has a program on AMC called Comic Book Guys. I think the interesting thing about Comic-Con is how accessible the celebrities are. Take Alex Ross, for example. He's a painter who does photorealistic images of comic book superheroes. Uh, He's probably most famous for a graphic novel called Marvels, in which he goes back to the early days of the Marvel saga and retells part of the tale of that 
early period in photorealistic imagery. It's stunning. It's beautiful. And Ross is there on the floor. You can go up and meet him and talk to him. And, and that's something that, um, you know, we're losing increasingly numbers of the early comics creators. I remember several years ago, um, a gentleman named Jerry Robinson was on the floor. And most people don't know who he is, but he co-created Robin the Boy Wonder and the Joker and Catwoman and all these characters that are household names. But Jerry was actually sitting at a table and nobody was talking to him. Uh, and this was part of the impetus for us when we started thinking about the museum was how do we reclaim? How do we bring back into the public's eye those creators who gave us so much. When you were thinking about what should go into the museum, what are some of the fun discussions you and your fellow curator had about, wouldn't it be great if we got this? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, the, the holy grail for us was we really wanted Jack Kirby's drawing board. Kirby laid out and drew most of the early Marvel universe. So Iron Man to Thor to the Avengers. Kirby did all that work on a table in his basement. Um, and we, we, we asked the family, but they were a little uneasy about giving up that precious heirloom. But we did get a lot of cool things that are just miraculous. So the only surviving piece of artwork from the very first Marvel comic in 1939 is on display, along with a copy of the published comic book, which is rare and worth... Uh, Roughly a million dollars. No. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's in a glass box under lock and key. Um, Jack Kirby's, uh, one of his early drawings of the Black Panther is on oh. display there. Uh, the costume that Chadwick Boseman wore in the film Black Panther is on display there. We really wanted a piece of artwork that is held in the collection of Library of Congress. They actually have the original 16-page story that introduces Spider-Man to the world. No. And uh, we have on the wall the very first page in which Peter Parker goes into costume as Spider-Man. And my co-curator said to me one day, he says, look at that image. For a moment in time, that was the only image of Spider-Man that existed in the world. And now, of course, Spider-Man is emblazoned on every lunchbox and bedsheet in North America. You know, it just sounds like the course... Where you take some of your students to San Diego is a dream come true. What do students get to experience? What we're looking at when we're in San Diego is the way in which the people who make comics, make film, make toys, make whatever, are trying to pitch what they have for the audience. So here's the thing you need to buy in the next year. Here's the film you need to go see in the next year. They're really doing a trade show at Comic-Con. If Comic-Con doesn't love you, the general public won't love you. And so there's a real effort by the people who create the content to make sure they put their best foot forward with Comic-Con, else they'll be sorry later on. What's an illustration of what the comic world or graphic novel world is now? Well, I, you know, I think the, the one thing that if people have not read it, uh, they should take a look at is Congressman John Lewis's March, uh, which was a three-volume graphic novel uh, that details his work with the civil rights movement. It's part memoir, but it's also part history. It's getting across the struggle in a way that we may not see in a television program or a film necessarily, uh, but that can be delivered to a wide audience from young readers to old. And a lot of teachers are doing that in schools. Um, I used to guest lecture at a public school that had students go in and pick a slice of history or a moment in history and try to give illustration to the story that went with that moment. So, you know, the way to find, uh, help students to express themselves, comics afford one venue for doing that. 
You could do it with film. You could do it with essays. But comics seem to have a lot of appeal, particularly to young audiences, because they can combine their creativity with their favoritism for images uh, and put things into imagery that, um, you know, it'd be hard to cosplay uh, Abraham Lincoln without a lot of makeup and costumery. But you can draw a picture of Abraham Lincoln and it looks pretty much like him. Matt Smith is professor and interim dean of the College of Humanities and Behavioral Sciences at Radford University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain! I can't hear you! Aye, aye, Captain! Oh! Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? Be something you wish. This is the opening theme to SpongeBob SquarePants, a Nickelodeon cartoon that's been on the air nearly 20 years. The quirky characters and sweethearted absurdity have attracted kids and adults. The finest eating establishment ever established for eating. Well, it's no secret that the best thing about a secret is secretly telling someone your secret. F is for friends who do stuff together. U is for you and me. N is for anywhere and anytime at all. Down here in the deep blue sea. You may have hoodwinked everyone else in this backwater town, but you can't fool me. I listen to public radio. SpongeBob's creator, Steven Hillenberg, passed away last week from a degenerative disease called ALS, sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease. In his memory, we're re-airing this interview with longtime SpongeBob animator, Tuck Tucker, who's now a lecturer in animation at Longwood University. Tucker's also worked on other cartoon classics like Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, and Hey Arnold. He's now spearheading a major in animation and graphic design. He wants the next generation of cartoonists to think about telling great stories, not just drawing good pictures. Tuck, before you became an animator, before you went to the West Coast, when you were young, what sort of artistic talent did you realize you had? Everything for me, and I think you'll find this true of a lot of the older animators, had to do with animals. Animation and animals were inseparable. And that way, I'm very old school. And animals are something I've brought into the workplace many times. How did you know I'm going to head west, young man, and become an animator in Los Angeles? As a student at Virginia Commonwealth University, I knew I wanted to work in animation based on the strength of the teaching that I got there. And my teachers were Steve Siegel and Phil Trumbo. It just so happened when I graduated and needed to start thinking about a job, Steve Siegel decided he was going to quit teaching. So we both moved out to California at the same time to become roommates while he pursued animation in his way and I pursued it in mine. What year was that? That would have been 1984. Steve was on the cusp of all things computer animated. The next thing you know, Steve was at Pixar, animating with a computer. And the next thing I knew, I was at Disney working on The Little Mermaid. I really needed to make a choice. Was I going to live in the world of 2D where I drew everything? Or was I going to keep doing this thing, this, this new crazy thing called computer animation? 
When you applied for the job, Disney made you do a test. What's a test for animators? A test is the old-school Hollywood's uh, screen test. And what they do is give you The Little Mermaid, or they give you something from an old Disney classic and say, here's where Roger Rabbit starts to talk, and he's got to walk over to this side of the room and put his elbows on the bar and order a drink. And you have to fill in all those gaps. You mean you have to say what's going to happen next or draw it? You have to draw what's going to happen next. How'd you do? I guess I did okay. I just showed it to them, and the next thing I knew, I was in. (laughs) There's never a straight line between what you want and what you get. You may get it, but the way you got there is never how you expect. You went on to have a hand in so many popular shows, some of them that you're less proud of and some that you loved. To keep food on the table, I had to work at a place called Filmation, which you have to give them credit. When things were bad, which was when I first got to Los Angeles in the early 80s, they kept all of us alive, making something called (laughs) He-Man. And He-Man... There was a room where you would go and say, can I have the scene of He-Man throwing a bolt of lightning? And could I have his angry head and his squatting body? And this guy named Munchie would give you these stacks <laughs> of paper, and you would go and you would Xerox the throwing of the spear piece of paper, and you would save that, and then you would... Uh, grab some drawings of him squatting, and you would mend that to the torso of the hand throwing the spear, and then you would stick an angry head on it, and then you would get his mouth chart for that scene. And you would cobble all of these pieces together like a puzzle and submit it, and you were done. It was not an ideal way to work, but it kept a lot of us alive until the industry caught fire. And by that I mean... Disney got back into the feature business with The Little Mermaid and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And Fox got into The Simpsons, this uh, little show that was just an interstitial on The Tracy Ullman Show, now had a whole studio that needed animators. I was at Disney working on The Little Mermaid, and when I heard that there was something going on called The Simpsons, I submitted a portfolio to Fox got in as an animator on The Simpsons. Um, And it didn't hurt that I was already friends with Matt Groening's family. The show was based on his real family. His father's name was Homer. His mother's name was Marge. His sister's name was Lisa. His other sister's name was Maggie. And it just so happened that I was friends with Lisa. That was sort of an end to help me get work on The Simpsons. And I was very happy there until I realized I was never going to be able to create content for that show. They had Harvard writers, Yale writers to handle that stuff. We were just to take orders from them. And so I heard about this guy across town named John Chris Lucy, who believed animators should be making the big choices and do the heavy lifting of story. And I put together the best portfolio I could come up with, and he called me back. Mind you, he was already a cult sensation in the business. Anybody who was working in animation knew about this nut, John Crisfalusi, who was doing it right. What did he do? John Crisfalusi created a show for Nickelodeon called Ren and Stimpy. And Ren and Stimpy was a completely drawing-driven show. All you got would be a premise that could be a paragraph or maybe a page. But it would just say something like, Ren and Stimpy wake up and discover they're broke. (laughs) 
That's the beginning of a lot of good stories. Yeah. And they decide that the quickest way to an easy meal is to become firehouse dogs and ride around like the Dalmatian does uh, with firemen. Uh, But it doesn't work out. In fact, a lot of their stories have to do with being broke and without prospects. I think maybe that came from the perspective of the animators who were working on the show. We had all gone through lean times before everything caught fire in the 80s. It was no small feat to get it to work for adults and children, because after all, we were doing this for Nickelodeon. And darn it, we figured out a way to do it. And we got in a lot of trouble along the way. It became the job of the studio to keep us from sneaking stuff in that was a little too adult. And that tension actually worked in the cartoons in a a way that made them better. It made them sufficiently adult that grown-ups could stand to sit through them while their children were enjoying them. That's exactly right. All of a sudden, grown-ups were putting their TV guys and their their newspapers down and, and leaning forward did Ren actually just do that? Did he? <laughs> did I just see some animal's butt <laughs> naked? Nobody even thought to ask a cartoon to do that. You eventually went from there to SpongeBob SquarePants. Working for John Chris Felusi was part of a wonderful pedigree. Uh, you are who you work with and who you've worked for. And if you had worked for John Chris Felusi, people would seek you out. They want some of that magic to work for them. So after Nickelodeon took Ren and Stimpy away from John Chris Felusi, those artists were out and available to influence other shows. And we spread, some might say like a virus, through the industry. Um, Some might say that we informed in the best possible way shows like SpongeBob, where the contention of the creator was drawing was important. Drawing had power. And in fact, some things really can't be written, and they could be shown only through a drawing. And that power is mostly through the humor of the drawing and the richness and creativity of the scenery. Is that what you mean? Uh, Or are you talking about the accuracy of what a sponge would look like in the ocean? Accuracy has very little to do with it. Yeah. Accuracy only had to do with how much people were laughing. Were they laughing 70% more than they used to laugh? Were they laughing 20% more? You could actually hear people say things, and they would do it with a a straight face. I think the way you had it before was 20% funnier than the way you have it now. But I would think that would come from the script, not from the illustrators. Well, they wouldn't have let you work on SpongeBob then. (laughs) You might have found a good job at The Simpsons, though. I, I would also say that writing for animation is not for the weak of heart. The reason why is you're expected to turn a script around in a very short amount of time. And you have to do it all before the animators can work. They assume that if you're going to write for animation, you can do a script in two weeks. But they know because of the laborious process to create the drawings for animation, you're going to need about eight weeks. So it looks a lot better for those of us who draw when it comes to staying employed than for those of us who write. So there's some, there's some, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, there's some practical reasons for wanting to draw in animation as opposed to write. Which relatively new works in animation have you been really impressed by? Um, going back a little ways, up from Pixar, The Incredibles from Pixar, and anything Hio Miyazaki has done ever. 
Hiyo Miyazaki does those beautiful illustrated films. Tell me about those. Hiyo Miyazaki has a very introspective process. He has a special place where he likes to draw. And a lot of people don't know what he's working on there until he's ready to show them. And a person, only a person with his cachet can get away with a thing like that. And outfits like Disney wait until he's ready to show them what he's got. Of course, his advantage is he conceives of it, he illustrates it, he creates it. He's not simply being told which illustration, one after another, to stick on a on a film. No, I would like to be the person who tries to tell Hiyo Miyazaki which illustration to stick in front of what. Um, <laughs> I think you'd see that very quiet little man turn into a, a, a monster. No, he has the cachet to do things at his pace, uh, to do things his way and to not conform to any kind of story structure or any executive's idea of a good story. Does he have a following in the sense of a whole school of illustrators and animators that are following in his footsteps? I think you get drummed out of animation if you don't love Hiyo Miyazaki. You just don't go there. Yeah. Who else has that kind of cachet or almost that kind of cachet? Is it somebody at Pixar? who, again, has the license to create and a vision to do it all? Yes. I would say Brad Bird in America uh, approaches that. He is the creator of The Incredibles. He started out working for Steven Spielberg on a show called Family Tales, I think it was. And he created a show called The Family Dog. And based on that, he has created a whole career, starting with The Simpsons, he was our, our go-between working with Michael Jackson on Do the Bartman. And he was the go-between between the artists on The Simpsons and the writers on The Simpsons. There was a bit of a chasm there. The writers wrote and the artists drew. And the two should not meet uh, except at the premiere. And Brad mended that by taking our wishes to the writers and relaying the writers' wishes back to us. Then he went to Pixar and created The Incredibles, and Pixar set him to work on Ratatouille. He oh, went, I loved Ratatouille. <laughs> Ratatouille was not in great shape until Brad Bird took it. Oh, it was already conceived of, and then he came on board. Exactly. Brad was brought in to fix Ratatouille and was told, then you can do your great opus, which would become The Incredibles. What else did he do? He also did Up? Uh, Brad Bird's uh, participation in Up, I'm not sure there is a link there. He may have already been working on his next project when Up came along. He promised to make the next 2D movie. He went to the Disney Studios and bought up the old animation furniture that helped people make the 2D classics, going back to Dumbo, Snow White. He bought the tables and the chairs I uh, took them up to Northern California with the promise that he would give them use making his next film, which would be a 2D film. We're all still wondering what that's going to be because we don't <laughs> know in what uh, version or shape that idea is. But Brad can work in any medium, 2D, 3D, script-driven as in The Simpsons, board-driven as in his work in The Incredibles. And um, anything else that he sets his mind to, he, for me, approaches the cachet of Hiyo Miyazaki. Ah, wow. So are the great ones people that are terrific illustrators, 
mostly? Are they just in crazy imaginative people that have a vision? There wouldn't be anything about a person like Brad Bird that would suggest crazy. Brad is just a regular guy who you see at the public pool with his kids swimming. Um, you might run into him in the locker room putting his trunks on. He does not strike you as the world's... Uh, he, he's not a Broadway dancer. He is a regular guy, uh, as are most of the best animators that I've worked with. They're very regular people, um, not given to anything that you would call show busy, with one exception, Seth MacFarlane. Seth MacFarlane created Family Guy and American Dad. Uh, both have been huge successes for Fox. And he represents the other spectrum of animation folk. That is, the people who can sing, dance, um, are better at cocktail parties. And um, at the same time, I have to say, when he isn't working, he is the nicest, easiest to talk to, regular person you'd ever want to meet, as are most animators. And he is an artist. He's an artist. He's a voice talent. He's a singer. He's a host of the Academy Awards. He can do everything. Do most animators have voice talent, too? No, absolutely <laughs> not. I know I don't. Do sometimes animators, though, find they do have one and write for their own voice? That's been done many times at DreamWorks. People who had been working for John Chris Felucci years before are finding themselves directing uh, features at DreamWorks. And as they pitch, Jeffrey Katzenberg might say, that voice you're doing for those penguins, do you think you could do it for real? <laughs> All of a sudden, a guy who spent his whole life trying to draw is up for an Academy Award for his performance as a character, as a voice talent. That doesn't happen every day, but many animators have hidden talents. Once in a while, like with me, I get to write a song. Uh, once in a while, you get to do a voice. Once in a while, you start as a story artist and you become the director. Who are some of your favorite voices on the shows you've worked with? Mm, I would say anything that Tom Kinney does is absolutely professional, unique, and original. And that would be from SpongeBob to the professor on Powerpuff Girls. to He's done dozens and dozens of incidental characters that you would never recognize. But... I guess what I'm saying is he's a person who can walk into the room, receive a script, get a little bit of direction, and not only do SpongeBob for that day, but do the disgruntled cook, do the angry man on the bus, do the bus driver, do a child who wants his pacifier, all in the same session. And I have to have a lot of respect for a person like that. Did I read that you brought wild turkey eggs when you were in California to a class and allowed these to hatch into baby turkeys, and somehow that illustrated illustration? Well, it was an illustration of how we should regard life. Uh, for all the ribald comedy that you might find on a show like SpongeBob or Ren and Stimpy, the people that we were bringing in as entry-level positions and as interns at Nickelodeon had to be schooled in the very basics of animation. And I was tasked to teach interns about animation, and I needed to have something that approached a story that we could latch onto. And in this case, it was the story of the gestation and the hatching of 
something interesting. And I knew that anybody could find a chicken egg and hatch it just about any place. I wanted our students to have something they could talk about. And it's very important that my teaching process and the way I thought about it started there. I want things to sound good in the retelling. The fact that you want to know about this tells me I was right. (laughs) (laughs) We brought wild turkey eggs into the studio and put them in an incubator. And all of the interns that I was in charge of instructing came up to my office and put their names on each egg with a pencil. And so the eggs went into the incubator, and I continued teaching about things like drawing storyboards, how to draw a storyboard. And every week, we would take the eggs into a dark room. That's right. Somebody let me go into a dark room with their college-aged kids. And we would candle the embryos and see how they were coming along. Some of the eggs were dead. So some poor guy named Jimmy might have a dead egg. But some some lucky girl named Jenny might have an egg that was doing very well. And then they hatched. All of a sudden, your egg had life. That took those interns into a very different place. They were much more invested in this thing that they were now tasked to draw. It's evolution. It's turning from a chick to a young wild turkey. They became engrossed in what was to happen after the internship program was over. What was to become of these birds? Uh, Some of these birds had storied lives after the internships. Um, They were sent out to local farms and stuff. Some of them are still alive, I have no doubt. Um, Some of them met horrible fates. But the the point was that we gave our interns a respect for, for story and the fact that at the core of every story was some soul whether it's a silly thing like SpongeBob or a real thing like these baby wild turkeys, which turned out to be completely adorable. When you left L.A. to help create a brand-new animation major at Longwood University in Virginia, you carried on that tradition. Now you're using not turkey eggs, but I hear quail eggs. Both, actually. Turkey eggs weren't available when this semester started. Um, So we tried doing it with quail eggs. We bought 25 quail eggs, only two hatched, and they both died. (laughs) And so all of a sudden, our pupils are getting an appreciation of how invested you can become in something and have it just blow up and die, which is pretty good instruction for a person working in animation. You would be surprised how often that happens with your work. And I brought back those teaching methods that I learned at Nickelodeon, uh, using animals, using real people, using actors, total immersion, and presenting our students with real-life problems that they might find in the animation world. How popular is the program proving to be now that you've just completed the first year? We seem to have the problem of not finding enough desks for the students that are coming in. They are filling our ranks faster than we can make room for them. William Tuck Tucker is teaching animation at Longwood University and building a department of graphics and animation design there. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. 
With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzyk, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Wayne Winkler at WETS. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Oh,